I'm Damien Venuto. It's September 14th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Hundreds recently took to the streets to protest the sentencing of a teenage rapist who was given nine months of home detention. Placards on display question why the justice system fails victims and how a rapist could end up with such a light sentence. So how did this end up happening? Is enough emphasis being placed on the harm suffered by the victim? And is it perhaps time to look at how New Zealand's justice system could be changed? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alice Mills, a senior lecturer in criminology at Auckland University, for a discussion about whether New Zealand's justice system is getting the balance right. Alice, to start things off, can you explain the factors that judges take into account when it comes to a sentencing decision? Yeah, there are a variety of different factors that judges can take into account. So things such as the seriousness or the gravity of the offending, the culpability or blameworthiness of the offender, personal circumstances of the offender, the effects on the victim, but also whether or not there has been any restorative justice that has taken place and any agreements that have been reached through that process. There also may be aggravating or mitigating circumstances that the judge takes into account And also, of course, there may be cultural reports as well. Now, in legal theory, we hear quite a lot of discussion about the differences between punitive and restorative justice. Can you explain these ideas and how they're reflected in the sentencing process? Yeah, I mean, one of the things to firstly just to bear in mind is that restorative justice generally takes place prior to sentencing. It's an opportunity for the victim and the offender and potentially others as well to come together to discuss the uh, impact of the offending on the victim. Generally, it's, as I say, it takes place pre-sentencing, so it may lead to a reduction of the sentence, but that's not necessarily guaranteed. And of course, it has to take place with the consent of the victim. In terms of punishment, well, the Sentencing Act 2002 basically suggests that there are various different aims of sentencing, one of which is to hold the offender accountable. But there are other aims of sentencing in there as well, such as promoting a sense of responsibility in the offender, providing for the interests of the victims, rehabilitation, deterrence, protection of the public. And one of the things that we need to bear in mind is that the Act doesn't say which one of these aims should take any kind of priority. It's not defined which is more important than any other, and that is largely just left to the judge's discretion. What do you make of that nine months home detention for, for four rapes? I imagine it's, it's pretty shocking. It's a holiday, yes. Yeah, it's shocking. Mm. It is really shocking. That's not even two months per girl. Mm. Um, in, in this case, well, it's just on that, so it's quite disturbing. Controversy was sparked in recent weeks when home detention was given to teenager Jaden Mayer, who had been accused of raping four girls. While the case caused outrage, both the defence and the Crown supported the home detention sentence. So why do you think they both supported the sentence in this instance? The first thing that I want to do is just acknowledge the experiences of the victims in this particular case, and in particular, the harm that has been done to them and the trauma that they would have suffered through these acts, but also their substantial bravery in bringing this through the criminal justice system. We know that particularly in cases of sexual violence, but in many other cases as well, that taking a case through the criminal justice system can be re-traumatising for the victims. So that's the first thing I want to acknowledge. 
The second thing uh, we need to bear in mind is that home detention is generally at least supposed to be a mixture of punishment and rehabilitation, and it can be imposed for up to 12 months. It's quite hard to know exactly why they have, why the judge opted for home detention. We did hear from the Crown Prosecutor suggesting they had supported the sentence of home detention in order to basically protect the community on a long-term basis and suggesting basically that this was done for rehabilitative purposes. It's hard to know other than that, largely because there's quite a lot we don't know. We don't know about the personal circumstances of the offender. There may be something there that the judge is taking into account that we're not aware of. And it's also quite interesting that they've met with a psychologist 30 times. That strikes me as quite high. So there may be some reasoning behind that too, which may have affected this sentence. How common are home detention sentences in New Zealand for crimes such as this? That's a really good question. And it's quite hard to tell you the answer to that in terms of young people. But in terms of adults, last year, um, just over 20% of people who were convicted of sexual assault, and of course, that includes a range of different offences, received a sentence of home detention. The majority uh, received a sentence of imprisonment. So we have to be a little bit careful about the figure of just over 20% because we don't know about the seriousness of those cases and what the level of offending was in those particular instances. I mean, do you think that in instances of sexual violence, it might be time to look at whether we're getting the balance right between punitive and restorative justice? I think that's an interesting question, but we need to be aware that restorative justice frequently is not used in cases of sexual violence. And within the restorative justice community internationally, there is substantial debate about whether or not restorative justice should be used at all in these kinds of cases. There are some people that suggest it's fine if the victim requests that restorative justice processes take place, so long as it is guided by specialists, people who work within the sexual violence sector. But others suggest that the power imbalance between the victim and the offender is too great and that essentially there is a danger that restorative justice practices may re-victimise victims. So I think that's one thing we need to acknowledge, first of all. The other thing is, is that I think we should also be considering in terms of thinking about the balance is actually what does justice mean to victims? And we know from research both overseas and in Aotearoa that perceptions of justice can vary quite substantially, particularly amongst victims of sexual violence, that many choose not to go through the criminal justice system, quite understandably, because it can be so um, traumatising. But also justice for them can involve a variety of different elements. It, it may include holding the offender accountable, but it may also be about being listened to. One of the things that has also emerged from this case is the financial hardship uh, that has been mentioned by one of the, the uh, families of one of the victims in terms of how much it has cost them to deal with the aftermath. So the chief victim's advisor in 2019 produced a report suggesting the vast majority of victims going through the criminal justice system feel neglected and feel that their needs have been ignored. So we need to improve our procedural justice, our support for victims, to give them enough information to make them feel safe so that they won't walk into the alleged offender and the alleged offender's family in the courtroom. So the Chief Victims Advisor therefore has recommended that we should be looking towards a much more integrated system, an integrated criminal justice system, which focuses um, on restoring victims, focuses on victim well-being, for example, enabling victims to access support services, 
independent from the offender focused system so that victims would be able to access services. Ideally, I would say at no cost to them and that they can access these services without having to go through the criminal justice system and without having to go through that process where they may be re-victimised by virtue of going through the criminal justice system. Alice, this debate has been ongoing for quite some time. The murder of Michael Choi in 2001 led to the imprisonment of Bailey Kutariki, who at the age of 12 was involved in the offence. Can you talk about the impact of this and the debate that's emerged from that case? Yeah, I think probably one of the most important debates that has emerged from that case is about the notion of name suppression. The fact is, is that, of course, this particular offender did not have name suppression. And as a consequence, this has become quite a notorious case. And as Ian Lambie and others have pointed out, his name being known means that this is extremely unlikely to help his rehabilitation and therefore is unlikely to keep the community safe in the longer term. We know that he has been back in prison several times now. He is in a unique position and has spent what she said were very important years of his life in prison and now has to learn to live under intense scrutiny. We know that he has grown up essentially without support and guidance around him. It's basically going to be extremely difficult for him to overcome the stigma of this particular crime. Alice, what does recent research show around perpetrators of violent crime reforming while they're in prison? That's an interesting question. Um, And I think the picture is a little bit mixed here, as you might imagine. So in Aotearoa, Corrections runs um, special treatment units for violent offenders. And in the annual report, um, 2021, it suggested that this had led to nearly 10% reduction in resentencing. However, this figure was not statistically significant, which basically means that it's possible that this effect actually occurred by chance rather than by anything else. It also runs a few other programs. Um, One of the most widespread programs is the Medium intensity rehabilitation program and there is a suggestion that that reduces reoffending by around about seven percent um, if it's administered in prison and around about nearly nine percent if it's administered in the community and these figures are statistically significant we do also need to bear in mind though that rates of offending for people uh, leaving prison in general are pretty high so around about 60 percent of people uh, leaving prison are basically resentenced within the space of another two years but suggesting that prison really is not the best place to go to for rehabilitation and I suppose like back at the Jaden Mayer case, that comes in as part of the justification for home detention rather than sending them to prison because the long-term hurt that might result from that to the community would be greater, or at least in theory. That does seem to be the case um, in, in this instance, yes, that does seem to be the justification for it. Another contentious area in sentencing centres on white-collar criminals who often steal far larger amounts than small-time crooks but often get lighter sentences. Why is our legal system still softer on white-collar criminals than it is with other types of offending? White-collar crimes in general just don't get the same kind of public attention as other offences. And I think there are several reasons for this. Firstly, it's not seen to be kind of quite so, well, uh, sensational or kind of visual as a crime. And as a consequence of that, it may be less likely to appear in media discussions. Jared Gilbert has also pointed out that often the victims of white-collar crime are seen as faceless, particularly if it's a notion of defrauding the government in some way. It may seem that they're almost victimless crimes, whereas in reality, of course, that means defrauding taxpayers and we all pay. The other thing that I think we need to bear in mind as well is some of the language that is used around white-collar crime. So the differences in the language that are also being used to describe white-collar criminals. So Lisa Marriott discusses this quite substantially in her study looking at uh, comparing tax evasion and welfare fraud. 
and talks about how not only are those who are found to have committed uh, various um, tax offences are more likely to avoid prison than those who commit welfare fraud, but also they're often described in different terms. So they're described as engaging in tax discrepancies rather than tax evasion. And it sounds as if there's a kind of lack of intent there. It sounds as if they haven't deliberately committed a crime. It, it, it kind of minimises the situation, essentially. So that's another thing that we have to bear in mind um, as well. When you look at that, do you think that this is an area of the law that might need some attention, given the long-term harm white-collar criminals often cause to their victims? Do you think that this area of the law needs to evolve? Absolutely. And I, I agree with what Jared Gilbert said in the recent article in relation to white-collar criminality, that in terms of investigating a white-collar crime, it makes more money, um, essentially. So I think it's really about toughening up on some of those investigation practices. Alice, do you think our legal system gets the balance right between offering rehabilitation to perpetrators and giving retribution to victims of harmful crimes? I think that's an interesting question. But one of the things that I'd like to highlight is this is not necessarily just about retribution. We need to ask the question, what is justice for victims? And as I said before, victims have a variety of different perceptions of justice and what they perceive justice to be. And on that basis, again, I think we do need to take into account what was said by the chief victims advisor, that the current justice system doesn't work because it tends to very much sideline victims. They feel ignored, they feel neglected, and that they're often just seen as witnesses, essentially, who are given uh, little assistance. So we really need to think about whether or not we can provide a much better system which focuses on help assisting victims and potentially restoring some of the harm that has been done. Thanks for joining us that's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.